opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, a little Brent fan, Metallica. Thanks for being here. Earlier this morning, just after 9 o'clock, we spoke with the uh, Speaker of the House in the Arizona State Legislature, Ben Toma, an introduction of the Protecting Arizona Against Illegal Immigrations Act. This would be a CR, HCR 2060, which they want on the ballot. If it passes the House and the Senate, it will get on the ballot, and voters will decide on what they are calling the strictest um, the toughest immigration law that's ever been written. So I spoke to Mr. Toma about this and asked him what's in it and what will it accomplish. And here is a little bit of what he said. It actually adds a, uh, a significant uh, number of changes and, uh, for example, tougher penalties. It creates two class six felonies, two new class six felonies. First, for anyone that's working to either either alone or with others to to obstruct or prevent anyone from uh, doing their duty to use a, a, a verify as required by by this law and then secondly of course for any employer w- would be guilty if the employer knowingly refuses to verify the the eligibility of um, of someone either that they know or should have known that that person was not lawfully present uh, in in the u.s you know as a an outsider looking in at this uh, the questions i would ask of anybody that's an opponent of this is what are what are they supposed to do nothing I, this is a major question this is no longer a partisan issue except in the halls of congress it is a partisan issue where both sides are pointing the finger at each other but neither side is committed to doing anything about it there was an attempt at a piece of legislation that didn't get out of the united states senate The House is now coming up with some border stuff of their own. But is there a real serious conversation of anybody sitting down? I will tell you that I had had multiple reasonable conversations on this. I talked with Senator Sinema on their piece of legislation, and I don't want to cloud the issue with with Speaker Toma. I'm going to get back to this. But it stems from these their lack of getting anything done. State of Arizona spends over $2 billion a year. I believe that's the number is 2.4 billion. I'm going to just to verify the number that the state of Arizona spends that money annually on the care of migrants, 2.4 billion on undocumented people um, with over 54 percent of that devoted to K through 12 costs. Um, Saying that people have to obey American laws is not xenophobic, nor is it racist. I can understand the plight of people, and I can say that I join them in believing that our immigration system is broken and that our immigration system needs to be fixed. But the border issues are much bigger than just people coming here for a better life for their families, and we all know it. Um, one of the things I played earlier today, Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, was questioned about 20,000, over 20,000 Chinese migrants have crossed into the U.S. since the beginning of the year. Most of them are of military age young men, not families. So we understand the national security risk of that. We do know that there has been a huge uptick in the number of people that have crossed the border that have been captured that were on the terror watch list, which also means how many are begs the question, how many of them have not been caught that are on the terror watch list? There are huge national security implications. We haven't even talked about fentanyl and how Arizona is the super highway for fentanyl distribution um, nationally. 
And so I, I, for the people that are opponents of these pieces of legislation, whether you like it or not, there are some in the business community talking about this, which we're going to get to in a moment. But I also want to know, what do you expect the legislature to do? This falls squarely on the shoulders of the Biden administration because he's the president now. When he's not the president, uh, whenever that is, then it will be on the shoulders of the next president when it comes to policies and things they can do if they're if they're serious. And so far, we haven't seen anyone show us that they're serious about this. Senator Sinema came on this show and talked about her piece of legislation that didn't wasn't successful. It was a reasonable conversation about the things that are in it. We also backing up most of what she said was the uh, the head of the Border Patrol Union, the Border Patrol Council, which represents the Border Patrol agents who was in support of this legislation, getting to debate on the Senate floor in the Senate to get to the Senate for debate. And the reason why is uh, Brandon Judd told us is because there's good things in this and we need to get the bad out. We need to get to this out there. Well, it didn't happen. We had Representative Juan Siscomani. We had Representative Andy Biggs talk about why they were against it. Why wasn't this the beginning of a conversation? That's a great question. But in the meantime, what is Arizona going to do to protect Arizona? That's what the job of the legislature is. So um, he talked about uh, crimes because I said to him, one of the concerns, one of the detractors of this, and I'm going to read from the story that's in front of me. Um, This creates a perverse incentive for people who cannot work to engage in potential illegal and dangerous behavior in order to make ends meet. That is Representative Oscar de los Santos from Levine, a Democrat. It flies in the face of a welcoming, safe and loving society. And I I will tell you where I disagree with that. It does not fly in the face of a, a loving, welcoming society. Because you're only welcome, again, if you own a grocery store, you welcome customers in. You should have an inviting environment for people to come into your store and shop. You don't have to say, we don't want people here that aren't supposed to be here. You can't shoplift in this store. We don't want people loitering. That doesn't mean you don't have a welcoming and it isn't an inviting environment. That's the problem with this. So I asked Mr. Toma, I asked Speaker Toma about this. Are you concerned about an uptick in crime because people aren't going to be working? And that's where we have an uptick in crime already from the fact that we have we're not enforcing immigration laws where our border is open. And uh, and, you know, all of the the, the invasion that's happened there, uh, specifically the the fact that we've got uh, fentanyl coming over the border, which I know has been talked about a lot, uh, human trafficking, uh, but just the human cost of having these policies that continue to invite people to be here. And how are we supposed to take care of them? So I, I think that's an excellent point. And so the other side of this, if you look at cities and states that have had welcoming laws for people in the country illegally, you have the state of Massachusetts, which has a mandatory shelter law, which the citizens want to desperately want to change because they understand as immigrants come to this country, they know if they go to Massachusetts, the law says they have to be sheltered. New York, which was a sanctuary state, not just a sanctuary city in New York City, the governor was talking nationally around about how welcoming they were and you're welcome to come here no matter what your status is. She went and changed her tune when she did cable news shows because New York is overwhelmed. The city of Chicago, which is a very liberal voting base, the voters in Chicago, 
Chicago have got a very poor approval rating of their mayor and his handling of this issue. And they also want to reverse their status as a sanctuary city because it incentivizes people to go there. So this is taking away the incentives for people to come here. If people and these are the good people that are coming to Arizona and I'm I'm being serious. I don't I'm not condoning them being here, but these are the people that are coming here that want to work, that want to improve their lives, not the criminal element. But if we are incentivizing them or we are not taking away that incentive, if employers understand, and this is one of my issues with this, is is this going to unfairly burden employers? And he says that's not it's not the case. Uh, Mr. Thomas says, I own a business. He said this is not about creating more bureaucracy. Listen to him. Uh, this isn't about creating more bureaucracy to make it tougher for businesses, especially as a small business owner. I can 100 uh, percent vouch for that. And uh, and that was never the intent. This is about holding those that are that are that are that have been skirting the law and have been losing the, using the loopholes uh, accountable to, to ensure that this stops happening and that. You know, people that are willing to take advantage of of Arizonans that are working here legally go somewhere else. So the question is for voters in Arizona, many of you are are going to vote. If given an opportunity to say if you come here and you try to work illegally and, and employers are skirting the law and hiring people illegally, they're going to pay a heavy price. So that means the employers are going to be less likely to do that. If the employers are less likely to do that, will the people that are here when they enter through Arizona illegally, will they go somewhere else where it's easier to find work? Will it take away that? incentive. And if that's the case, are you in favor of it enough that you would vote for these laws to be on the books? That's the question that voters will face if this gets to the ballot. Coming up in a moment, we get you caught up on the biggest news stories of the day in a segment we call Did You Hear This? We'll do it in just one moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, let's catch you up on our biggest news stories. We call it, Did You Hear This? Did you hear this? Broomhead's reaction to the hottest news stories. Arizona House Speaker Ben Toma joined the show this morning to talk about the immigration law he's working on to get on the ballot in November and why he decided to add to the E-Verify law. Uh, the reason this is important is because, you know, I've been scratching my brain how to how to do this in something that's significant that removes the incentives for illegal immigrants to stay in this state in particular. And that's why I built on the on, on the original E-Verify law, because that was upheld as constitutional by the United States Supreme Court. Do you think this can get passed on the ballot and if it will pass, if it does? Yeah, I think it could. I think it's it's got to, you know, people are very frustrated about illegal immigration and doing something about it, I think, is important. But there are big questions that remain. One of them is enforcement, because he talked about it gives the ability for county attorneys as well as the attorney general. But who is the what's the enforcement arm here? Is this the police? Do the police have to do these investigations? Who is it that does the investigation into this? Does it have to be somebody from the county attorney's offices? Uh, those are some of the questions as well. But people People are frustrated and they want something done and they want to send a message. So, yeah, this has got a chance of passing if it gets out of the House and Senate. 
Late last week, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos should be recognized and protected as unborn children. The decision reverses a lower court's ruling in a case brought by a couple who sued a fertility clinic for wrongful death after someone dropped their frozen embryos on the floor, destroying them. Do you think this ruling will have a ripple effect on IVF, custody battles, and other post-Roe laws across the states? Yeah, I think that there's a big issue here now. We have always argued whether they like it or not. The argument about abortion has always been about when does life begin? Because everybody recognizes that a human life, a human life, whenever you deem that to have begun, that human life is entitled to constitutional protection. The right to life crowd, many of them say it starts at conception. Others are saying it starts much later in the pregnancy, so they've come to this conclusion of 15 weeks, but if this is now upheld by the United States Supreme Court, if we have someone that says, or a, a, a you know, the, the Supreme Court says that human life is in an embryo, well then that deserves constitutional protection. So is it going to get that far? We'll see. But this could have really big implications on any kind of abortion law that the nation sees. You are listening to Did You Hear This? We do it every day at 1120 to catch you up on the big headlines. Yesterday afternoon, Senate candidate Carrie Lake joined Outspoken with Bruce and Gatos and had this to say about Ukraine and U.S. involvement. I mean, it's very obvious when the spring offensive went nowhere in Ukraine that that war was lost. You'd have to be a fool to think it's still salvageable. The only way it could be is if we want to send NATO troops on the ground into Ukraine. It's over. It's lost. And I will never vote, by the way, to send NATO troops into Ukraine. The only question is how many more people are going to get killed. Do you agree with her assessment on the situation? You know, I'll be honest. I don't have uh, the the access to the data that she has access to with her campaign. So I don't know if all is lost. I do know that the U.S. is continuing to fund Ukraine because we have seen in years past what happens when you stop someone from incurring, you know, in an incursion on somebody else's land. We had to send a message and we're doing it without U.S. troops. In that regard, I was supportive of helping Ukraine push back so that our NATO neighbors, our NATO allies are not being put upon by, by this this dictator and who we have in Vladimir Putin. But as far as whether or not it's lost, there are many saying that, yes, it is. So unless we're going to get deeply involved, are we watching now what is the next step with some kind of resolution? And I agree with her in this sense. People have got to stop dying. It's the death that needs to end. And what is the fastest way to make that happen? Julian Assange is having a very important day in court in London today. Outside of court, it's come to this. A two-day final hearing for the WikiLeaks founder and the stakes couldn't be higher. His wife Stella addressing the crowd. They have to know they can't get away with this. Julian needs his freedom and we all need the truth. If the judges rule against Assange, his supporters worry he could quickly be put on a plane to the U.S. That's ABC's Tom Rivers in London. Do you do you think Assange should be extradited to the U.S.? Well, again, that's one of those stories. That's one of the big arguments of the argument about transparency and the argument about national security. Do I think that our government is doing a lot of things that we should know more about? I absolutely do. 
Are you crossing a line with international secrets, with our national secrets internationally by doing things like this? That's a bigger part of the question. If he comes to the United States, will he get a fair treatment and fair trial? To me, that's a bigger question than anything else. If he comes to the U.S. and he goes to trial for the things that happened, will he be given a fair opportunity to defend himself? If the answer is yes, bring him home and let the American people see what's going on. I think that's the biggest question of all is can he get a fair trial in the U.S. or is this going to be a death sentence for him because he's already going to be the assumption that he's guilty and they're going to lock them up and lock him up for the rest of his life. Great job, Jess. That is Did You Hear This for Another Day. We'll do it again tomorrow at 1120. What we're going to do in a moment is talk about the economy. Food suppliers are warning that inflation is squeezing out the average Americans. We're going to go back to that word I always use, which is policy. And the discussion, are policies adding to these costs? There are a couple of indicators that I still believe say absolutely yes, they do. We'll talk about them next. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. You know, it seems like we talk about the economy very often. Uh, There's a battle that's going on between the producers of what we consume and the White House. Um, First, it was the fossil fuel companies, and there's a lot to do with policy that I think jacked up the prices of fuel. We saw record fuel prices under under this administration's policies. They killed pipelines. They stopped mines. They stopped the uh, Resolution Copper Mine, which I think was a huge mistake for this administration. They've now stopped a a bunch of uh, liquefied natural gas projects, three of them specifically in the United States, because of concerns about climate change. Now, they didn't say that it was going to affect climate change. They said they weren't sure. And until they were sure, they were going to freeze these projects. But what that does is it sends a ripple effect. We just had a conversation about What's happening in the war between Ukraine and Russia and how the U.S. is sending billions of dollars in aid and munitions to Ukraine to aid them in pushing back Russia as best they can. Um, But we also understand that when we make a decision, we as a nation, we make a decision when it comes to the LNG and we're not going to produce it and there's these projects are going to be killed. What that does to the market in nations like Russia is it enriches them. Europe has got to buy it. We know that Russia is making huge amounts of money in their economy because of it. And these are policy decisions. So, you know, it's, it's very easy to get caught up in the personality conflict of politics. I don't like this person because they're an opposing political party. It's what we do with sports teams. We hate people in sports. I I joked around about this. Uh, You know, I'm a big college football fan. I'm a Miami Hurricane. And when Tim Tebow played his last game for the Florida Gators, and I am a Gator hater, um, I actually tweeted out that I can start hating the Gators again now that he's gone because he was such a respectable guy. But I'm not a fan. But in sports, I can be emotional. I can I can just say I can't stand that team. And there could be filled with people that I have a great admiration for. You know, I it just but sports are uh, can, you can afford to be just emotional when it comes to sports. When it comes to policy and it comes to the direction of the country, you've got to back things up with specifics. And I will tell you specifically the stopping of these projects. There's another project where there's a story I have in front of me of a rancher in northern Arizona 
And if you remember last year, in August of last year, the president, President Biden, came to Arizona and declared a national monument in what they aimed at protecting tribal lands. But what they did in that designation was not only stop the future of a possible uranium mine, but they also stopped the grazing of cattle on, on over a million acres of land in the middle of nowhere. One of the ranchers is suing the Biden administration. So I can make a direct connection, and so can you. Intellectually, we all understand it. Ranchers and farmers are the true environmentalists. They want to make sure that there's enough water. They got to make sure there's land for their cattle. They live off the land. They make their livings off the land. It is in their best interest to maintain it properly. Well, now you take that away from them, and the cost of their business goes through the roof. In many cases, it could damage it irreparably, and he's suing the administration because of it. So here we are with beef cattle being at a minimum since the 1970s, the smallest numbers. It is much more expensive to feed them, especially if you're feeding them hay. If you've got them out there grazing off the land, it drives down their feeding costs. And you're taking away this land from people that are producing food that you and I consume at a time when groceries are through the roof. So I don't expect anyone to agree with me 100% of the time, even 50% of the time. But you have to know that my opinions come from a place of looking into things. When the White House comes into office and before this president even took office saying that he was going to destroy the fossil fuel industry, no more drilling, go and look up the, the video. And then the pushback is, well, if you look now, the U.S. is producing more oil now than we ever have before. And what did it take to make that happen? Record fuel prices for the American consumer, record gasoline prices, record diesel prices because of the failed policies on ending pipelines and no drilling onshore, no drilling offshore. You can go and see the video of the debate between, at the time, Vice President Biden, former Vice President Biden, candidate Biden against Bernie Sanders. So the policies were forced to change because when you had NATO, I'm not NATO, I'm sorry, when you had the OPEC nations diminish production, the price of oil is going up. The heavy oil that was used in heating oil, when you now have this natural gas moratorium in the U.S., it is going to make it more expensive for our European allies to buy what they need in liquefied natural gas. They're going to get inflated prices from Russia. It's going to enrich that country. But you look at what it does to the American production and the American workforce. These are policy issues that directly correlate to inflation. This administration was told over and over and over again that it was not going to be transitory inflation, and they didn't listen. So you've got food suppliers warning Americans that they're getting squeezed by inflation, and yet there are still policies in place that are making it more difficult for food producers to economically produce the food we consume. Is it 100% Biden's fault? Never have said it once. Never have said it. Did the war play a role in grain for food and heavy oil for heating oil and others? Absolutely, it played a role. But denying that the policies of this administration didn't play a role in it, that's pure politics. We all want affordable food. When you look at the mining projects in Arizona, I keep harping about the Resolution Copper Mine, and I know there are others, and I hear from people that talk about others. My connection is 
my friend Steve was able to get me a visit to the Resolution Copper Mine, and I got to see it with my own eyes. I watched a video about it for quite a while, then I went down into the mine, and I learned about the environmentalist standards that they put in place. It is the most environmentally friendly mining project in this country, probably in the world. The water they need, because we're so concerned about water, they have it. I watched them. I talked with them. They have a water treatment plan where they take the water that's used in extracting the copper. When the water is done being used, it is sent downrange to a water treatment plant. The water then is reclaimed. That reclaimed water is then just sent down to water crops. So the water is being salvaged. The land is not going to disturb the sacred land. And I know that I don't have time to give you my entire resume, and nor should I. But I have spent a lot of time on tribal lands in Arizona, probably more than the average person. Not more than some, but more than the average person. So I have a great amount of respect for the history and the culture of the Native American tribes. This is not going to destroy tribal lands. As a matter of fact, some of the people I met working for the Resolution Copper Mine on my visit are members of the tribes. They believe in the project. Doesn't mean everybody does, but there's another side to the story. This mine has enough copper in it to produce 20% of this nation's copper needs for the next 50 to 60 years, right here in Superior, Arizona. So go to that part of the state and look what it can do for the economy of that area, for the economy of the state overall, what it would do to the tax coffers for the state of Arizona if we could just start producing copper. But that was ended by this administration. So we're going to watch the uh, the price of these commodities continue to climb because the demand is growing with the push toward electric vehicles and solar panels, all the minerals we're going to need, including copper in all of this. And yet we are diminishing our capabilities of doing it in a, in a good way just for the word environmentalism. It doesn't make sense. It's damaging to our economy. It's hurting the producers of the food and the fuel that we use. And they're demonizing those people as profiteering. I just think it's the wrong way to look at it. It's the wrong direction for us to take. We're going to connect this also to the workforce in a moment because in addition to higher costs for production, who will do the work? There is a number about the uh, – actually not just a number, a statistic about the number of people aging in this country and what's it going to mean for our future. I'll get to it here coming up in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, a few minutes left before we close it out. I've got a headline that I want you to hear, and it's called The Silver Tsunami. Now, I got this from Axios, and um, The Silver Tsunami, record number of Americans set to turn 65 this year. There are a couple of things that are big implications in all of this. A record number of Americans turned 65, about 4.1 million people, according to the Wall Street Journal. The surge of 65-year-old baby boomers born 1946 to 1964 will continue through 2027 with calls. They call it a silver tsunami. Um, today, 65-year-olds are redefining a milestone long associated with retirement parties and the end of productive years. They are wealthier by, and by many measures healthier than expected to live another 20 years. Um, one quote says, I'm not tired, I'm healthy, and I enjoy my job. Kathy Wheeler, who turned 65 this year. There are a couple of things. 
First of all, the implications on Social Security, as you know, we are finding ourselves as a nation deeper and deeper in debt. And part of it is because of our commitments to Social Security and Medicare, Medicaid, which we can't back out of. No one is uh, no. I don't think anybody is talking about backing out of those programs. But how do we keep them solvent, ignoring them for political reasons and saying everything is fine? Keep your hands off them isn't doing the job. We have got to address this issue. We are spending, we're going to be spending more money on interest than we do on other things like national defense. That is, and there's not a business, there's not a household that can survive with those kinds of debt numbers, and we all know it. It's not going to get better, it's getting worse. The good news is, and I, I, my favorite word, I believe, my favorite word is dichotomy, because everything is. The dichotomy is our healthcare system, our ability to live longer is so much better now. You know, um, my father died 15 years ago of colon cancer, but he died because he never went to the doctor. That was a big part of it. But the advancements, you know, my brother and I, because it's in our family, uh, get the tests done, get the colonoscopies done. And, and if they find something like a polyp and they find things early enough, they eliminate the chance of you developing that cancer. And if you do regular visits to the doctor, you keep a lid on that. Your PSA score for guys and your, um, your susceptibility to prostate cancer and keeping up with that, the better are you, you do it those things the longer that you live. My mom is living proof of that. My mom's going to be 81 years old in June. My mom is very healthy, but she takes care of herself and she goes takes regular visits to the doctors. Her brothers didn't. Her brothers passed away at a much younger age. Her parents, my grandparents, both died in their 60s. Both of them from cancer at a time in the 1970s where the technology was nothing like it is now. So the good news is you can live a healthier life much longer now than we did in years past. Past. You can enjoy those retirement years and living longer. The dichotomy, the other side to that, though, is it costs a lot more money to support those people. Just talked about younger people, the Gen Z people that are blowing off job interviews and not showing up for work and the entitlement. We can argue about that forever. But I will tell you, I have a lot of faith in the younger generation, the industrious things that they can do and the world changing things that they can do. But are we preparing them for those things? You know, um, every kid wants to do something fantastic, at least I think they do when they're young. You want to be an astronaut. You want to be a singer. You want to be a dancer. You want to be a football player. You want to play in the uh, Major League Baseball or the NBA. But you also, as a parent, guide them to live their dreams as long as they can, but prepare for something else just in case. What if you get injured? What if something happens? You've got to be prepared to do something else. You can't ignore your studies because you think you're going to be a world-class athlete. If that doesn't work and you don't have an education, what happens to you next? We're not preparing people for an education. That's part of it. So while a significant number of Americans are beginning that aging process where they're going into that winter of life that could last another 20 to 25 years, during that 20 to 25 years, what's the generation, entry-level generation, what are they bringing to the table? Are we preparing them for those things? Because people grow up. I was a maniac of a teenager. I was a maniac of a teenager. And I'm, I was different at 25 than I was at 15, and I was different at 35, 45, and 55. But if I hadn't had the education I did at a young age, if I wasn't prepared to be a learner, when I decided I was going to be smarter at 25 than I was at 15, I would have been ill-prepared to do anything about it. And I would have been trapped because I didn't have the ability to climb out. 
So we look at this aging number of Americans and say we're living longer. That's great news. Uh, we're wealthier, according to this. That's great news. What about the wealth that's going to be created by the generation that is now sitting in a high school classroom as we speak? What are we doing to prepare them so that in 40 years when they find themselves where we are, that all of a sudden the world is a better place? That's a lot, a lot of work to do. I just wanted to bring this up and kind of tie a bow around the age of people, education, and the economy. You can hear the music. We're just about out of time. What that means is it's time for me to pitch social media on X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it. At Broomhead KTAR is my personal account. At Broomhead Show is the show account. Please follow both. Would love to keep in touch with you there between shows. And Mike Broomhead, all one word on Instagram. Please keep in touch with me between shows. Tomorrow morning, we're back just after 8 a.m. Until then, we hope you have a great day planned. We'll see you tomorrow morning. God bless.